I've, uh, I've never preached in stereo before, so forgive me if I favor one side over the other. It's not personal. Uh, also, I played 18 years of rugby, which is about 16 years longer than anyone should play rugby, and I got so many concussions, I have a tremor in the right side of my body, so if I point at you with a trembling hand. I'm not angry, and you don't have to wave back. It's just me. I, uh, I teach scriptural theology to freshmen at a boys' preparatory school in St. Louis, Missouri. My monastery runs a school. And every year, there's one kid in class who decides he will become my nemesis. I can depend on this kid to provide the most obnoxious, objectionable, most uncharitable interpretation, the most awkward question, the most compelling heresy to counter any interpretation I posit as orthodox. I don't really mind having a kid like that in class. In fact, I kind of enjoy it. It keeps me on my toes. But last year, that kid was Chad Huber. I have his permission to use his name, by the way. (laughs) Chad had decided he was a utilitarian, liberationist, existentialist, atheist. (laughs) I'm pretty sure he didn't know what that was. I mean, I don't know what it was. But I knew it was going to have an impact on the class discussion when Chad volunteered to read the last few verses of Luke 20 aloud in class. Those who are deemed worthy to attain the coming age and to the resurrection of the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. They can no longer die, for they are like angels. Now, the whole bit about angels sounded pretty good to Chad, but drawing Jesus' logic to its ultimate conclusion, he concluded that to the immense disappointment and distress of the class as a whole, that that there was no intercourse in heaven. He then declared that if this were the case, he did not intend to go. (laughs) I pointed out that as an atheist, this shouldn't have an effect on him one way or the other. But the rest of the class was distressed. If television had taught them anything, it is that sex is the end-all, be-all of human existence. So I had to explain to them that everything on earth is but a pale reflection of God's infinite goodness, that everything on earth is a shadow of its heavenly reality. So we're going to do this with God asked Chad. No, no. What? No. Don't be ridiculous. Well, then who are we going to do it with? Now they all wanted to know. Well, no one. Then there is no sex in heaven, says Chad. Well, strictly speaking, no. And an analogy came to me that C.S. Lewis used to favor and that I'd had to fall back on once or twice already. He said, trying to explain heaven to the living 
is like trying to explain college to a kindergartner. Will there be cookies and chocolate milk? Well, no, not officially. Will there be recess, nap time? No, but there will be things there that are much better, in a sense. Yet the child keeps coming back to the cookies and milk and recess and nap time because those are the most exciting, pleasurable things he can imagine. I'm not sure it convinced most of my freshman class. But I find it some consolation to see that the best Jesus could do to describe heaven was to compare it to a loaf of bread or an enormous mustard bush or a fishing net. None of these analogies appeal to me either. But then again, if we go to the scriptures expecting to find a convincing depiction of the pleasures of heaven, we're bound to be disappointed. Because the scriptures were given to us to help us get to heaven, not to help us imagine what it's like. As for these seven young men in our first reading, well, their martyrdom is truly heroic. They looked forward to heaven so completely that they were willing to be tortured to death rather than betray even the most trivial of God's laws. You want to cut off my hands, says the third young man. Well, fine, I'm going to get them back anyway in heaven. And all he had to go on was a very vague hope of some life beyond the present. We, on the other hand, don't need to imagine what heaven is like because we experience it every Sunday at Mass. Some of us are lucky enough to experience it every day at Mass. And this is why the Mass is often referred to as the Divine Liturgy. Because it, it literally brings heaven down to earth. Sadly, not every church is privileged to have talented musicians, as you do. And not every Eucharistic celebration is punctuated with a brilliant and insightful homily. In no, that wasn't a joke. <laughs> In fact, as often as not, our immediate experience of the Mass is one of boredom. The same words, the same droning homily, the same tired music week after week. Not here, of course, but many places. If that, but if that's the way we experience the Mass, it is only because we have so little faith. If we could see what was really going on here, if we could look at the liturgy with the eyes of faith, we would see thousands of angels gathered around the altar. We would see St. Francis and St. Dominic and St. Benedict and Mother Teresa sitting in the pews with us. We'd hear choirs of cherubim and seraphim singing the Gloria. Because when the priest holds the Eucharist in his hands and says, This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That is exactly what it is. The risen body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. A few years ago, and by that I mean around 1960, for monks have very long memories, 
A monk named Gregory Dix wrote a book on the Mass. I've never read it. But there's a single paragraph from that book that has been passed along from monk to monk ever since. I don't think the original book still exists. But we keep reading this paragraph to each other. It's one of the most eloquent descriptions of what we're doing here tonight, and I'm going to finish my homily with it. He writes, For century after century, spreading slowly to every continent and country, and among every race on earth, this action, this mass, has been done in every conceivable human circumstance, for every conceivable human need from infancy and before it to extreme old age and after it, from the pinnacle of earthly greatness to the refuge of fugitives in the caves and dens of the earth. Men have found no better thing than this to do for their kings at their crowning and for criminals going to the scaffold, for armies in triumph, or for a bride and a bridegroom in a little country church, for the proclamation of a dogma, or for a good crop of wheat, for the wisdom of the parliament of a mighty nation, or for a sick old woman afraid to die, for a schoolboy sitting in examination, or for Columbus setting out to discover America, because the Turk was at the gates of Vienna for the settlement of a strike, while the lions roared in the nearby amphitheater on the beach at Dunkirk, tremulously by an old monk on the 50th anniversary of his vows, secretly by an exiled bishop who had hewn timber all day in a prison camp, gorgeously for the canonization of St. Joan of Arc one could fill many pages with the reasons why men have done this and not tell a hundredth part of them. And best of all, week by week and month by month, on a hundred thousand successive Sundays, faithfully, unfailingly, across all the parishes of Christendom, the pastors have done this just to make the plebs sancta Dei, the holy common people of God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit.